Well, good morning, Life Church. It is good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're with us. If you're in the room, that's true. If you're online with us, that's true. And we're grateful that we can be together and gather together as the people of God around the Word of God this morning to hear the voice of God as He transforms us. And so, because that's why we're here, um, I hope you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your device. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19 here in just a moment. I'll let you uh, go ahead and grab that and and hang out there. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, For the most part, uh, my wife and I both grew up in and claim as our home of origin the great state of Texas. Now, in our married life, we had a couple of exiles in the Midwest, but we are by and large Texans. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we went to middle school in Texas and high school in Texas. We went to college in Texas. We met one another in Texas. We bought our first home in Texas. We married one another in Texas. The first church I pastored in was in Texas. All four of our children were born in Texas. Really, like, Texas is is the place to us where most of our personal and family milestones have occurred. And so we, we still, in a very real and substantial way, call Texas and consider Texas to be our home. Um, we think fondly of the Lone Star State and are eager to get back to the promised land any opportunity we have to visit it. Um, Texas, it's, it's a significant place in our lives. But, and I can't stress this with the importance that I want to give it today, We have never spoken with Texas accents. It's really critical to me that you hear me say that. We have avoided, at all cost, speaking with a Texas accent, which means we don't say howdy instead of hello. Um, We don't say I'm fixing to instead of I am about to. Uh, When I want to say the word well, it does not sound like the word whale. Um, when I want to say the word Washington, it does not sound like the word Washington. And until recently, I swore off and avoided even saying the word y'all. In fact, I only started saying y'all when I moved out of Texas and wanted to find some new way to kind of maintain my Texas roots, or as a Texan would say, my Texas roots. We have avoided speaking like Texans at, at all costs. It's just been important to us that if you meet us, that we sound a little bit like literate, articulate Americans and not like Texans. My family in Texas is, I'm sure, listening to and hating every moment of this right now. But anyway, we have, we have strived to speak not like Texans, but like Americans in our lives, which is why you can imagine my horror when, as we were still living in Texas, our children reached school age, went to school, and started coming home from school speaking with Texas accents. I still remember very vividly the day when my son came into the house after school and he said, Dad, can I have a snack? And that you know, short vowel sound in the word snack stretched on for like four or five seconds. And I just immediately washed his mouth out with soap, right? <laughs> because in my house, we are not going to speak like Texans. That was my attitude. And I just remember sitting there that day wondering how in the world could this have happened? And of course, the answer to that question is obvious. My children were starting to speak like Texans because they were going to school with Texans. They were learning from teachers who were Texans and sitting next to classmates who were Texans. And therefore, they were coming home speaking like Texans. And that's true regardless of what part of the country you're from and what dialect of American English you speak. 
right? That dialect, it is shaped not just by what you are taught, but also by the people around you. In other words, the way we speak, it is both taught and caught, right? We can teach somebody how to form a word, how to construct a sentence, how to speak in English, but at the very same time, that's going to be modeled for them by people around them. They're going to hear how to speak just as much as they learn how to speak. And they're going to emulate that way of speaking. Some things are taught. Other things are caught. The same principle is true of Christian character. We can and should teach people what godliness looks like. What it, look like, what it looks like to mature in your relationship with Jesus in terms of your character, those things must be taught, in fact. But on the very, at the very same time, they are also things that are and should be and must be caught. We've grown, each of us, in our godliness, in our virtue, in our character, not only because of how we've been taught, but also because of people who have modeled maturity and godliness and character for us. The Apostle Paul had this principle firmly in mind when he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so he was saying to the Corinthians, of course, listen to my teaching, hear my words, pay attention to the doctrine and the ethics that I'm trying to press forward to you. I mean, that's in 1 Corinthians 11 that he says that. So he spent 10 chapters already teaching, but now he's adding also Follow me. Model your life after me. Imitate me. Copy me. Look at the pattern, not just of my words, but of my life. And conform your life as well to that pattern. Because Paul knew, as we should, that godliness is taught, yes, but it's also caught. And that's an idea that is really front and center here in the passage we're looking at this morning, Philippians 2, 19 through 24, and the passage we'll look at next week, Philippians 2, 25 through 30. In these two passages, Paul mentions two of his ministry co-workers, a man named Timothy, who we're going to consider today, a man named Epaphroditus, who we will consider next week. And he mentions them for several reasons, but one of them, maybe even the most critical, he mentions them because they demonstrate and live the kind of godly lives that Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to live. Right? They embody the very characteristics that Paul has been, in te- has been teaching the Philippians to live out. And so Paul has taught them. Now he points to Timothy and to Epaphroditus because he hopes that the Philippians will catch from these men the very same things he's been teaching. Let me show you what that means this morning as it pertains to Timothy. Let's read Philippians 2, 19 through 24. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
Church, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we study it. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes that are open and hearts that are soft to the truths that are here this morning. We pray that we would understand the example of Timothy's life that Paul points to, and we pray that we would exemplify those virtues and characteristics in our own lives. Help us to understand and uh, to obey this morning as we press into your word as your people. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've uh, commented about the fact that Philippians is a book that is full of what I called a few weeks ago coffee cup verses. And by that I mean like the kind of verse that winds up on a coffee cup or, you know, on a piece of art on somebody's wall. Um, and, And Philippians is, it's just full of verses like that. And every chapter there are individual statements that are profound and powerful and moving, and they're the kinds of things that like, people will memorize and, and celebrate. Um, but there are none of those in this passage that's in front of us right here, right? I don't think anybody's favorite verse is in Philippians 2, 19 through 24. I don't think anybody has something from Philippians 2, 19 through 24 tatted on their arm. I don't think anybody has these things plastered on their walls or on their coffee cups. Um, but that doesn't mean that these aren't powerful and profound words. We just kind of have to peel back the layers here in order to understand their power and their profundity. Um, We're going to do that by just thinking about three questions that we need to answer in order to kind of pick up what Paul is putting down here. And so we're going to talk for a little bit about who Timothy is. That's the first question. Who is Timothy? Secondly, why does Paul talk about Timothy? And then thirdly, what does Paul say about Timothy? So who's Timothy? Why does Paul talk about Timothy? What does Paul say about Timothy? Let's start. Who is Timothy? Well, according to Acts chapter 16, Timothy's a young man who is converted. He becomes a Christian in a place called Lystra. Um, Paul, shortly after Timothy's conversion, meets him, meets his family, and it seems that Paul immediately recognized Timothy's potential um, to the degree that Paul didn't leave Lystra without Timothy. And so Timothy was a young man, meaning probably like a young adult, when he met Paul and he left his home. He left Lystra with Paul and the two embarked together on Paul's continued ministry journeys. Um, And that was really the beginning of one of the most powerful ministry partnerships that the world has ever seen because Paul and Timothy together were a formidable force. They spent a lot of time together. They became dear friends with one another. We can even hear kind of just the sweetness of this relationship in verse 22. Paul says, you know Timothy's proven worth How, as a son with a father, he has served me with me in the gospel. And so there's this kind of paternal relationship between Paul and Timothy, where Paul is a spiritual father, Timothy is a spiritual son who has learned much from Paul, his spiritual father, and they have that sweet depth of love that a father and son ought to have for one another. They were good friends, but they were also partners. Paul trained Timothy in the ministry, and in a, in a very real way, Timothy, as Paul's kind of pastoral apprentice, became an extension of Paul's ministry work. And so when Paul is imprisoned and unable to travel, often he would send Timothy. When there were difficult church situations that needed to be addressed and Paul couldn't address them himself, often he would send Timothy. Timothy was basically this extension of Paul, kind of, kind of like Robin to Paul's Batman in a way. And so That's relevant as we think about what Paul is saying here because 
we need to think through not only who Timothy is, but why Paul mentions him. Paul mentions Timothy because he plans to send Timothy to the Philippians. And I want you to pay careful attention to this because really, like these verses and the paragraph we'll look at next week, this amounts to a travel itinerary, right? There are three people who are going to be traveling to and from Philippi. One of them is Epaphroditus. We'll look at Epaphroditus next week. And it's worth noting that Epaphroditus is the guy who's going to show up in Philippi first. In fact, Epaphroditus probably shows up in Philippi carrying Paul's letter to the Philippians. Right? There's no uh, email. There's no mail service. There's no Pony Express. If you write a letter to somebody in the ancient world, somebody has to carry and deliver that letter. Paul sends Epaphroditus to deliver this letter that we've been studying this fall. So Epaphroditus is the first guy that's going to arrive. It seems that Timothy is the second guy that Paul intends to arrive. And Paul wants Timothy to arrive second for a couple of reasons. Look back at verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I, may, I too may be cheered by news of you. Right? And so Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians. And then it seems that he wants to get Timothy back from the Philippians. Like Timothy's going to go and visit them and then bring Paul an update on how the Philippians have received this letter that we've been studying. We might ask, why doesn't Paul just go himself? Well, he intends to, but look at verse 23. He says, I hope therefore to send him, Timothy, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Remember, Paul is still in prison. So he's not free to just depart and to go. He has to wait and see how his trial resolves. But he does trust that ultimately he will be released. So he adds in verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly... I myself will come also. And so what we're hearing is that Paul is just making travel plans. First Epaphroditus, then Timothy. Timothy's going to go and he's going to come back and tell Paul how things are. And then finally, Lord willing, Paul himself will go to Philippi. And you know, this kind of thing, it's common in Paul's letters. It's common in letters in the ancient world for people to tack on a travel itinerary to say, this is who's going where and when. This is what all that's going to look like. But there is one really unusual feature of this particular travel itinerary in the letter to the Philippians. Normally, when Paul writes stuff like this and says stuff like this, he does it sometimes at the very beginning of a letter, more often at the very end of the letter. Philippians is the lone exception. It's the only time where Paul launches into a travel itinerary right in the middle of the letter. And if we think about it, it really seems kind of odd and out of place on a certain level. I mean, why is Paul talking about all of these things right now when he's going to then transition in chapter 3 to, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord? I mean, he hasn't been talking about Timothy. He hasn't been talking about Epaphroditus. Why does he interrupt the flow of the thought of the letter in order to speak to these travel plans right now? That's a question we have to answer. Some scholars think, actually, that Philippians is two letters, that have come in two pieces and that you know, later editors have kind of stapled them together. And so this is really the end of that first letter. I don't think that's true at all. Rather, I think Paul mentions Timothy and Epaphroditus here because he believes that both of them exemplify the very characteristics that he has been teaching the Philippians to have. Right, he's been talking to the Philippians about how they should order their lives, about what a life that is lived worthy of the gospel really looks like. And now Paul says, you know, I know two men who live just this way. I'm sending them to you. First Epaphroditus, then Timothy. 
look at their lives, listen to my teaching and their teaching, but also catch from them their character, their godliness, their virtue. Look with me. I mean, I want to show you that, that Paul really singles out Timothy as being somebody who exemplifies what he's been teaching the Philippians. So we've been in Philippians 2 now for like four weeks, five weeks. Skim back in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul gives us this command, this instruction. He says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The command there is prefer others. Right? Don't think just about yourself. Don't be focused just on yourself and your needs and your desires. Instead, prefer the needs and interests and desires of others. And then immediately after Paul says that, he, he goes on to point out the fact that Jesus did that. Right? He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verse 6, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul's saying Jesus is somebody who looked to the interests of others, not only to his own interests. Jesus, in fact, looked to the interests of his church by coming in human form and laying down his life for his church to serve his church, not to be served by his church, not because his church satisfied any of his interests or desires, but because in love and grace and mercy, Jesus wanted to give his life for his church. And so Jesus is the example par excellence of this idea of looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But he's not the only example of that. And we see that because when Paul mentions Timothy in verse 20 now, back in our passage, he says, I have no one like him, no one like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, who will be genuinely concerned for your interests, who will care most about you and not about himself. And then he adds, for they all, meaning everyone else, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so you see, Paul is mentioning Timothy here because he wants the Philippians to imitate Timothy. He says, all these things I've been talking to you about, like if you pay attention to Timothy, he does them. He lives this way. Follow him. Imitate him. Catch from him these very things that we've been discussing. Now there's more we're gonna say about this passage this morning, but like right there we should pause and just acknowledge the fact that there are two massive implications here for the way that we live our lives. I mean the first massive implication here is that each and every one of us needs somebody who we are modeling our lives after. We need a Timothy whose pattern of life we can follow. We need someone whom we can imitate. We need somebody who that we can shape our lives to be like. Because no one ever grows up from the need to grow in godliness. And if Paul believes that it's not enough simply to be taught how to live a godly life, but you also need to have a godly example to follow, well, friends, it would be foolish of us if we thought that we didn't also need a godly example to follow in, lives, in our lives. It's not enough just to be taught. Godliness is also caught. And so the first thing that we should res wrestle with as we think about this passage, we should think about who we are modeling our lives after, who we are imitating, who we are following. The truth is all of us imitate someone. 
right? All of us are following someone. All of our lives resemble someone else's life. You know, we have people who we imitate, people who, who we pattern our lives after. Are we patterning our lives after people primarily because of their godliness? Are we patterning our lives after people primarily because of the example of Christian character that they demonstrate for us? Or are we inadvertently letting people shape our lives in other ways? Where have you learned how to pray? Where have you learned how to study the word of the Lord? Where have you learned how to encourage or comfort or counsel people who are struggling? Where have you learned, where have you learned how to repent? Where have you learned how to confess your sin? Where have you learned how to commune with God? I mean, there's so many things that, yes, we can learn about these things from the word. Yes, we can learn about these things because they are taught to us. But if we really want to grow in godliness, we'll learn also by modeling our lives after other people who show us how to do those things. Brothers, sisters, every one of us needs somebody to pattern our lives after. Nobody graduates from that. We need it. All of us do. That's the first implication just for the way Paul talks about these things here. The second one is, just as we all need somebody to pattern our lives after, we need to recognize the awesome power and responsibility that we have in being an example for others who will pattern their lives after us. I mean, we need to be able to say, like Paul does, follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And the truth is that There are people who look to us, each and every one of us, and who pattern their lives after the way that we live our lives. I mean, you're not too young to be setting an example of godliness and faith and virtue for somebody else. The man who led me to Christ when I was 18 years old was 18 himself, right? He wasn't waiting to grow up before he started trying to influence other people for Jesus. He started when he was young, and God used him. You're not too young and you're not too old to set an example for other people in your faith. There are people who will look up to you at any and every age as you demonstrate godliness. So recognize the power and the influence and the responsibility that you can have as you seek to model and exemplify what it looks like to follow Jesus. Church, you can teach your children until you are blue in the face about the Lord. But if you don't also model authentic spiritual disciplines for them, if you are yourself not walking in real Christian community, if you are not yourself demonstrating selflessness and service, if you are not yourself repenting of sin and confessing of sin, if you are not yourself showing other people mercy and grace, then the things that you teach your children, they will seem superficial and irrelevant. Because those things need to be caught as well as taught. Church, you can have real and deep and meaningful conversations about the Bible in your life group. But if you never live out those biblical principles in other relationships, your influence in that group is going to be crippled. Because the things that you say about the Bible, they're not going to line up with the way that you live. How you act, it often sounds so much more loudly than what you say. And so you can talk about being salt and light all you want. 
But then if you walk out and you blow people up on social media, how you act will sound more loudly than what you say. You can encourage your children to, play, to pray all you want, but if your own prayers are shallow and superficial and mere formalities, how you act is going to sound so much more loudly than what you say. There is just an awesome power in the way we live and the way that we can summon others to follow Christ as we follow Christ. In this passage, it points us to the fact that we must always be teachers and students. We need other people shaping us, and we need to be shaping other people. So that's what this, question, this passage asks us. Who's influencing you? Who is Timothy to you? And who are you influencing? Who are you being Timothy to? The third question, really the most significant question that we need to wrestle with here is what specifically does Paul say about Timothy? We've read it already, but I want to turn you back to verses 20 and 21 just to, to consider this more carefully. All right, Paul says, talking about Timothy, he says, I have no one like him. Why? Why is no one else like Timothy? Well, he's genuinely concerned for your welfare. Everyone else, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy seeks the interests of others is what Paul suggests. And so there are two groups of people, right? That's what he's laying out here. There, there's a group of people who are self-interested, or we might say self-obsessed. And then there's Timothy, who's genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, who is, we might call him self-forgetful, right? He doesn't look at everything that's going on in life and think, man, I really need to take care of my own needs. He looks at everything that's going on in life and says, I need to take care of and serve others. And it's this self-forgetfulness that Paul hopes that the Philippians will catch from Timothy. Now, what I want to kind of lay before you this morning as we think about this, as we think about this idea of genuinely being concerned for the welfare of others and being concerned for the welfare of others even more than we're concerned for our own needs and our own well-being, what I want to lay before you is the fact that like, that's really only possible because of the gospel. The gospel is the source of and the fuel of any kind of genuine interest in others that we might ever possibly have. Let me explain to you what I mean. First of all, when I say the gospel, I'm talking about the good news that God has through his son Jesus saved sinners like me. Right? He saved me not because I deserved it, not because I earned it, but because God is himself interested in the well-being of others and he gave his life, the life of his son, in order to save me. Now that, that gospel, it is the source of and the fuel of any genuine concern for others that I might possibly have. Why do I say that? Well, apart from the gospel, man, the only thing that's ever really going to consume my heart is me. Right, apart from the gospel, I am going to be relentlessly self-focused and relentlessly consumed by my own needs. Apart from the gospel, my natural inclination, right, the posture of my heart is going to be to grab and to take and to cling to what I want. And therefore, my needs are always going to be my highest priority, right? I'm going to be focused on what I need apart from the gospel. But the gospel, 
It takes my needs and my desires and it turns them upside down because the gospel means that my deepest needs, the things that I desire most of all and the things that I want to cling to, well, the gospel means that those needs have already been met perfectly and completely and eternally in Jesus Christ so that the things that I thought that I need, I don't actually need them anymore and instead what I have in their place is something much deeper and much fuller and much more permanent that will always last forever that I cannot lose and when my heart begins to grasp and understand that all of those needs have been perfectly met, then and only then will I be free to, as Paul says about Timothy, be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others and not seeking my own interests. The gospel is the key to this kind of self-forgetful others orientation that Paul says Timothy has, that he's been teaching the Philippians to have, that of course he wants us to have. Without the gospel, this just doesn't work. I want to illustrate that for you with the time I have left. We're going to do two illustrations on this because this is just a key. It's a key to the whole second chapter of Philippians. It's a key to the book of Philippians. And it's a key to the Bible. Two illustrations. One is a biblical illustration. One is personal. Let's do the biblical illustration first. A few moments ago as he stood right there, Chris read to us from Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bible with you and you want to flip to Isaiah 53 and 54, you can do that. But Isaiah 53, it is an Old Testament promise or prophecy pointing us to the work of Jesus for us in the gospel, right? The prophet is talking about Jesus when he says, surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. What sorrows is he talking about? What griefs is he talking about? He goes on in verse 5. He tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's talking about the grief and the sorrow of bearing our sin. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on this man, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so Isaiah 53, it's a very famous song of the suffering servant, a song of Jesus, a song that summarizes for us what exactly Jesus did for us on the cross when he died in our place. It's a beautiful summary of gospel truth. But what I want to point out this morning is what happens next when we get to Isaiah chapter 54. Just, just look at verse 1 with me, which in a really beautiful way illustrates for us what, the, what happens in our hearts when we believe in the gospel. Verse 1, Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. For every person in the room, and for every person on the face of the earth, one of the deepest things that we feel we need is some kind of sense of self-worth, right? We need to feel valuable and valued. We need to feel worth something. We, we need to feel significance. And in our culture, in our sin, we turn to many different things for that like value and worth, right? Some of us, we will turn to religion and to our moral performance for that sense of value and worth. And we'll think to ourselves, as long as my virtues outweigh my vices, then I will be worth something. But others in our culture will turn to our 
our personal and our professional success. And we'll think if we can just achieve enough, then we'll be worth something. Some of us will turn to like our social or political causes that we are fighting for. And we'll think if we can just do enough, if we can just be enough, then we'll be worth something. Some of us will look to our children and to the lives that they live for our sense of value and worth. We will look to anything for fulfillment, if we think that it might possibly fill us up, if it might possibly make us feel valuable, then we will trust in those things. That's us. In the ancient world, if you were a woman, there was really only one possible source of worth and value available to you, and that was bearing children. Right? In the cultures of the ancient world, the only thing that you could possibly do as a female to have significance or worth or value in the world was to bear children. And that's just because of how ancient societies worked. Right? In ancient societies, children were key to economic stability, to social stability, and to political stability. They were key to economic stability. Everybody farmed, right? And so if you needed people to work on your farm, you had to have a bunch of children because they would help you like, have economic prosperity and success. Children were key to social stability because they carried on your family line. And so the land that belonged to your family or to your clan could remain in your family or your clan through the generations. Children were key to political stability because they would serve in your armies, right? Like all of your boys, you give them like spears and swords and pitchforks and whatever else. And they would, you know, line up for your family in battle, for your city-state in battle. And so children, they were key to success in life. They were key to prosperity. They were key to stability. And so if you were a woman in the ancient world, you understood that like having children was your responsibility. There's no family planning in the ancient world, right? You just had as many kids as you possibly could because those kids were the key to growth and stability and prosperity in life. Which meant that if you were a barren woman in the ancient world, that presented just a profound and crippling challenge to your identity. Right? If you're a woman who could not have children for whatever reason, right, that just threatened your very sense of worth and value in your community and inside your heart. Barrenness, it, it threatened any hope of living a life of significance for a woman. A woman who was barren, she couldn't have the one thing that she believed she needed in order to matter, in order to have value. Now listen to Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So even though you did not bear, even though you did not have the one thing that everybody else thinks that you need in order to be happy and have worth and to be valuable, what are you to do? You're to sing and you're to break forth in rejoicing. Why? Keep reading. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. But there's a paradox there that I want you to hear and I want you to feel. A paradox that means two statements that cannot possibly be true at the same time. What are they? Well, the children of the desolate one. In other words, the one who has no children because she's barren. Her children, even though they're zero, they will be more than the children of her who is married. The woman who has nothing 
she will have more than the woman who seems to have everything. We're supposed to read that and wonder, how in the world is that possible? And then we're supposed to realize it's because of the love of the suffering servant. This is how the love of Christ in the gospel changes us. When the radical love and grace of Jesus coheres between our minds and our hearts, when the affection that God has set upon us in the gospel travels the 14 inches from our minds to our hearts, when it becomes the center of who we are, when we grasp the depth of the Father's love and favor and affection for us, then we can be like this barren woman. And from the world's perspective, we can have absolutely nothing, but still it will be said of us that we have more than those who seem to have everything because we have the love of the suffering servant. Because we have Jesus. We have more than anyone thought we might possibly have. More than it ever occurred to us we might possibly have. More than we believed in our heart of hearts that we actually needed. And that frees us to sing, to rejoice, and it frees us to genuinely and selflessly love others. You see, because when you're convinced that all of your needs are met in Jesus, then you don't have to care about any of your other needs. You don't have to seek the fulfillment of any of your other needs. You don't have to strive for and grasp for and cling to the meeting of any of your other needs. Instead of living life to take and take and take from others, you can live life to give and give and give to others. See, this is how the gospel restructures our hearts. It rewires the programming of our hearts so that we believe that what we have in Christ is enough, which frees us to forget about ourselves and to give and give and give to others. That's a biblical illustration. In case all of this talk about barren women hasn't landed for you. A personal illustration. My two oldest sons, Hudson and Isaac, are now 14 and 12 years old. And don't feel bad for them right now, by the way. I bribed them with fantastic cash and prizes for the right to mention their names and use this illustration in church today. And so they're getting off great. Um, they're 14 and 12 now. They're, they're 19 months apart in age, which means that when Isaac was born... Um, Hudson was 19 months old, not quite two years old. And um, I'll be honest with you, before Isaac was born, Hudson, my oldest, cared very little about or for me. Like, I just didn't matter to him. Because he realized that my wife was entirely capable of meeting all of his needs all the time. And so he looked to her for that, and he was satisfied by her in that. And so he just never really bothered with me. I was this irrelevant thing that existed in his life that he didn't need or care about. And then Isaac came along. And suddenly, Kristen, she, her hands were full, literally, with a tiny infant. And Hudson, even though he was not two, was bright enough to realize that he could not reliably look to my wife for the meeting of every one of his needs. He had to realize that you know, there were going to be some times when mom was going to be busy with baby brother and... He couldn't look to her for whatever he wanted or whatever he needed. I still actually remember the moment when it happened. We were sitting in the living room in the house that we lived in at the time, and Kristen had baby Isaac in her arms, and Hudson was doing something that he was just messing around a little bit. He was kind of a, a clumsy toddler, and he fell 
and like banged his head either on like a chair or the wall or something I don't really remember. And he didn't hurt himself, but he thought he hurt himself. And so, you know, 19-month-old Hudson, he stands up and quickly like this wave of panic and pain and terror washes over his head. And I see the tears beginning to form and he looks at Kristen and he realizes that she's not going to be able to be for him what he needs in that moment. So he looks at her and he looks back at me. He looked at Kristen again, hopeful, like that maybe like in turning his head one more time, the baby had disappeared and he saw that Isaac was still there. And so he looked back at me and he ran toward me with his arms outstretched, you know, like ready to say, dad, pick me up, help me, care for me, meet my needs. What happened for Hudson in that moment is that he found comfort and love and security in a place that he didn't believe it possible to find those things before, right? His heart, it changed literally in a moment. I could watch it happening. His heart changed, and he found comfort and love and security in a place that he didn't believe it was possible before. Friends, if we are ever to genuinely care about and meet the needs of others, it will only be because we're not looking to others to meet our needs. It will only be because we've found in a new place, a better place, an eternal place, the love and comfort and security that we've all been looking for for our whole lives. You know, that very thing that happened in Hudson's heart that day, it has to happen in ours. We have to turn away from whatever we're looking to in this world for worth and value to find those things in our relationship with the Lord. But once we find love and security and comfort there, I mean, can you imagine what's going to happen in your marriage if you stop looking to your marriage as this thing that's going to fill you up and you just posture yourself to give and to give and to give? Can you imagine the relationships that you can have with your children if you stop needing things from your children but instead just live to give and to give and to give. Can you imagine how crazy life church will look to the watching world? If we are known as a place where we don't, we don't come in here so that we can get stuff from each other. We're not in relationship with one another so that we can fill one another up. We're in relationship with one another so that we can give and give and give of ourselves. Let's set our eyes and our affection on Jesus Christ so that we can selflessly and freely share that love and affection with others, church. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we praise you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for providing for us a new place for our comfort and our security and our peace. We pray that we would come to understand how fully we can have those things in Jesus we pray that that would free us to live our lives for him and to give and give and give of ourselves for others because of him. We pray that in Jesus' name today. Amen.